0: So you grew up partially in Seattle.
1: I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, this is huge. Yeah, I went to middle school and high school there. See, I mean, Seattle's changed so much. It's crazy, but uh, I yeah. lived in Seattle when it wasn't cool. So yeah.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the GeekWire podcast. It's Todd Bishop coming to you this time from Pittsburgh, where GeekWire is reporting on the future of robotics, AI and automation this week in conjunction with the Cascadia Connect Robotics, Automation, and AI Conference, organized by Seattle-based Cascadia Capital, which is underwriting our independent coverage of this topic this week. One of the highlights of my week was a conversation with Matthew Johnson Robertson, the director of the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, which has been the source of numerous breakthroughs in robotics and automation since its founding in the late 1970s. As you'll hear, Johnson Robertson spent part of his childhood in Seattle where he went to Garfield High. He was a CMU computer science undergrad who went on to get his doctorate in robotics at the University of Sydney and worked at the University of Michigan before returning to CMU earlier this year as the leader of the Robotics Institute. I spoke with him this week in his office. So Matt, you've been back here in Pittsburgh for about four months as the head of the Robotics Institute, and we'll talk all about that, but you just came from Michigan. That's right. And it strikes me that between Michigan and Detroit and Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, you couldn't have picked two more interesting places to try and invent the future of industry and robotics. How would you compare and contrast the two places and what's it been like going back and forth between them?
1: Uh, that's a super interesting question. So, you know, Pittsburgh and and southeast Michigan in general just have so many parallels, sort of the kind of evolutions of those cities and the change in industry and sort of the reinvention of both of them um, are both, I think, really, really in many ways inspiring sort of American stories about how people that are hardworking can kind of Begin to redefine their own destinies. And so, you know, both of them uh, are cities that experience a lot of disinvestment and challenges around exits of industries and loss of jobs, and then have been working steadily to figure out what the next hundred years of both those cities will look like. Uh, So I feel really honored to be able to work in both of them. And I think the parallels are, again, sort of this idea that the people are really hardworking and they're modest, which I think is another very interesting trait relative to other places around the U.S. They don't toot their own horns uh, very much. And I think a lot of the work in trying to lead in these places is trying to um, get the word out on the stuff that's happening, because so many interesting things are happening in both places. So um, the University of Michigan, when I was there, we formed a robotics institute, so much younger than the one here at Carnegie Mellon, but with the same general focus, right, to bring roboticists together, to put a focus on um, developing new technology, training the next generation of robotics Um, students and practitioners and doing research that that kind of pushes the boundaries of the state of the art. So a lot of parallels between the two places. Detroit with the sort of history of cars is a really interesting place for the development of self-driving cars. And, and then Pittsburgh really because of the robotics Institute is this incredible sort of spawning ground for AV technology as well. And that's how I got into robotics, um, in many ways. So I worked here on a red Whitaker, um, for my first project. And that is, uh, on an autonomous vehicle. And that was in the DARPA ground challenges in 2004. And so, um, that, to me, was sort of the turning point in my career that made me want to go into robotics. And so it's been a nice sort of full circle experience to do that, to go to Michigan and work on AV projects there with the Ford Motor Company and others, and then to come back here to Carnegie Mellon. Um, hopefully, this isn't the end of the story. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, I think the popular perception
0: from outside mm-hmm. would be that Pittsburgh has more successfully reinvented itself from its industrial roots, in part because of Carnegie Mellon and the Robotics Institute. But I have not spent any time in Detroit to the degree I have in Pittsburgh. Is that perception accurate?
1: I think they're different. Um, The challenges the two cities have faced are are somewhat different. The size and scale um, of, of some of the problems. And really the the degree to which um, the industry has exited and and sort of the jobs they represented have changed. I mean, Pittsburgh has an interesting history in that, um, you know, with the sort of exit of steel, you see the rise of healthcare as sort of this um, uh, massive component of the economy here in, in Western Pennsylvania. And that, I think, provided an economic base for the universities to be able to really grow and thrive in the way that they did. Interesting. And and you know, I think the challenges that Southeast Michigan have faced those industries, particularly the auto industry, right, has gone through ups and downs, but it didn't have this sort of um, immediate and final uh, sort of departure, which then forced a lot of reconfigurations of, of the economy. So I, I think they're just on different trajectories. They both have a lot of the same challenges, which are trying to figure out how you bring that economic benefit to all the residents uh, of both cities. They have the same challenges around increasing cost of living and and sort of changing of the character of the city, and and you know everyone's trying to wreck with that and figure out how do we um, make a Pittsburgh that everyone's excited about and happy to live in and wants to be here. So I find more parallels than I do differences. I'm really glad that I had the experience I did in Michigan to kind of equip me for this job and what we're trying to do here, um, here in Pittsburgh. So Well, before we get to what you're trying
0: to do course. here, another interesting contrast in your work, underwater and terrestrial mm-hmm. autonomous vehicles. Which is harder, (laughs) land or sea,
1: surf or turf? That's a good question. Uh, You know, they have different challenges. But what's so interesting, and I think often gets overlooked, is that many of the pioneers of the AV industry came from an underwater robotics background. So John Leonard at MIT, Ryan Eustace, who's at Michigan, and many others. um, uh, But those are the first two that come to mind uh, are, you know, uh, underwater roboticists by training. And so um, I think why you see so much overlap between the two areas is that SLAM, simultaneous localization and mapping, was a really fundamental technology in, in kind of pushing mobile robots forward And it didn't require GPS. And so um, working in GPS-denied environments like underwater kind of really prepares you for driving through the middle of cities with giant, tall buildings. Ah. Um, If you ask me which is harder, they're very different. So for underwater, running into stuff is not a huge problem. You just don't run into the bottom. And I guess you don't pop up. Uh, from the surface. Uh, So the obstacle avoidance problems are significantly easier. And many of the dynamics of the way that things change are much slower, right? So uh, you don't have to worry about someone jumping out in front of you or the weather changing instantly. But the sort of big Disadvantages of working underwater is if anything goes wrong, your vehicle is going to implode and you'll never see it again. And uh, the logistics are very difficult. So I would say they just have different challenges. But the underlying, from a technology standpoint, um, things like SLAM, things like feature-based localization, things like visual navigation, visual odometry, those are all real commonalities. and least that's my own personal bias because those are the things that I work on and those are the things I find exciting.
0: So I watched a video where you showed students actually I think back here at CMU on a trip back before you came back to lead the robotics institute how you were able to with your colleagues map an underwater city that had been since submerged but the archaeologists or architects were basically able to recreate it as it was and then I know you're also the co-founder of a startup that's working on last mile autonomous delivery. So you're really into the applications of these things. It's not just the fundamental research, which is obviously important.
1: Yeah. And then that pedigree really came from CMU. So when I was here, you know, I work with red at the field robotics center and that, uh, the sort the whole mission and sort of, um, ethos of that place is taking robots out into the world, into highly chaotic unstructured environments. And that, that is, I think, what hooked me for robotics, right? Like, that made me think this is the thing that I want to do. And unlike kind of other applications of computer science, so I was a computer science undergrad here, unlike other applications of computer science, it just has a very visceral and, and sort of relatable um, way about it to take a robot, build it, and then put it out there in the world and see it moving around. And so I think when I was younger, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and part of figuring that out was figuring it out. I knew I liked programming, and I knew I wanted to be a programmer of some form, but it was figuring out what I wanted to do with that. And seeing things moving around just was so compelling that I thought this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so now I'm very lucky in that I get the opportunity to build uh, big robotic systems and and deploy them. But yeah, the commonality across all of them is that those application domains are very hard and robots don't work very well yet. So there's still a lot of problems to solve. So we've been having a lot of fun trying to get bicycle-sized robots to drive around uh, downtown Austin. And make deliveries. And then, uh, as you kind of alluded to, I get to work on underwater robots to map archaeological sites, to map environmental monitoring projects, coral reefs, um, sponge gardens, all those kind of fun things. And your startup is called Refraction AI.
0: And it's interesting for us, in part coming from Seattle, where we cover Amazon's Mm -hmm. logistics and delivery business very closely. It strikes me in that realm and in others The past two years and some of the labor shortages in the U.S. and globally and the supply chain issues, just all of the constraints that society is experiencing right now must have changed the conversation about AI and robotics from one of taking jobs away to enabling commerce. Am I on the right track? Oh, for sure.
1: I think you know one of the things that the pandemic has exposed is really many of the fault lines that were there but had sort of not really been uh, paid attention to uh, around the supply chain, around the danger and sort of costs of uh, some of the jobs that people were doing. And, yeah, I do think it's been an, an incredibly accelerating force for making people think about what can we automate. I think it has al- it also pointed out that we have a lot of work to do. So I think there may have been some theories floating around that, OK, if if there was a real need, we could deploy robots and, and replace all these jobs with robots and, uh, you know. It turns out there's a lot of things that we still can't do with robots. And so um, still a lot of work to be done, which I think is really good. And um, the pandemic has kind of, I think, just put uh, a lot of support behind the idea that working to figure out how to solve some of these problems that we still don't have um, robust solutions to, you know, and again, this is uh, startups, big companies uh, here in academia, research all across the board is an incredibly important and valuable thing. Like we understand that Commerce needs to happen and that we really don't have a long term uh, sustainable solution for doing lots of the things that we now expect. So that means everything from getting packages delivered in a day to getting your food delivered in an hour to um, moving uh, crates around a warehouse to getting things on and off big container ships in ports. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done. But yeah, so much of the conversation that society is having now relates to things that have been being talked about in robotics for a long time. So I'm really excited about the future because of that.
0: On the subject of last mile delivery in particular, do you closely track what Amazon is doing? And do you see them as a potential user implementer of if not your approaches at refraction, then approaches like what you're doing? Oh,
1: of course. I mean, they are the 800-pound gorilla when it comes to logistics, right? And so we look at what they're doing very closely. And part of what we were trying to develop at refraction when we were getting started was was really around trying to do something to some degree, different than what sort of the current market approaches were. So, Amazon acquired a startup uh, a while back, and now it's called the Scout Program, Amazon Scout Program. Yeah. And so, they have a bunch of sidewalk robots that they're deploying in a, in a bunch of locations around the world. But. What we thought or continue to think, I guess, is that you're going to need a bunch of different types of robots to actually serve this problem. And sidewalk robots represent one part of that. And so they certainly um, can handle really that, that let's say, last, uh, last quarter of a mile, last tenth of a mile. And that the sort of distances around dense urban areas will need to be served by a different type of robot that can kind of go faster and probably not on sidewalks, probably in the streets. And then when you get larger, you know, you think about trucks and autonomous trucks, and then there's uh, all kinds of great companies working on that problem. Um, and then in between, maybe AVs as well can do some delivery. So I, I, you know, the the future I envision is one in which all of these uh, technologies work together to create a supply chain that is. Um, faster, cheaper, but also more importantly, more sustainable, right? So the robots that we build at refraction are all zero emission vehicles. And that's one of the big um, changes I think we're going to need to see is when we think about the supply chain, thinking about the um, environmental footprint of that and how do we minimize that. And, and you know, all of these conveniences we've grown to love. How do we make that sustainably, both environmentally, but then also um, from a labor perspective, how do we make sure that people are paid fairly and that everybody is doing a job that they um, find valuable and and really care about? So, yeah.
0: Last question on this part. I looked at a video of the refraction autonomous vehicle. It's, I would say, bigger than a big wheel, smaller than a golf cart. I think bicycle is a better way to put it. um, A little bit shorter, perhaps, than a bicycle. But as you're saying, it goes in bike lanes and in the road. With my 2022 bias, sitting here thinking about all the drivers (laughs) around me, that seems crazy. Convince me that I'm
1: wrong. <laughs> well, so, you know, this is one of the really interesting things when we think about where robots should travel. So why we are kind of firm believers in the idea that these robots should travel sort of in this in this liminal zone between the sidewalk and the street is for two reasons. One, um, you know, I think there's these really fundamental limitations to traveling fast on sidewalks. Uh, they're built for human beings. They're often not built very well. They're pretty uneven. And so there are just these real locomotion challenges to going quickly on a sidewalk. So if you imagine that caps your speed at a couple miles an hour, really the pace you could walk safely, then if you want to cover larger distances, you have to think about going faster. And obviously, full-size AVs are, are... clear solution to that problem. Their cars, cars travel very quickly, which is great. But as we know, that's a really hard problem and people are spending billions of dollars trying to get there on that. But also more fundamentally for carrying point to point deliveries, the kind of things that prepared food look like. So your, your door dashes, your Uber Eats, those kind of things. Um, a full size AV is way overkill, right? Like you don't need a full size car to do it. And, and a sidewalk robot may be going too slow. So why we think the bike lane is that if you're going to travel at a bike speed and you're going to be about the size of a bike and the mass of a bike and all of those kind of things, then the natural place to be is where a bike would go. Now, all you have to do is go to any city and talk to a cyclist who tries to commute uh, on a bicycle to learn all the problems with uh, commuting in a current yes. built environment with bikes. But that being said, you know in many cities still, bike couriers are the most effective way of moving things around. So another thing we like to stress is that we, in many ways, represent hopefully something that is uh, safer than a full-size AV. So if something goes wrong with a thing that weighs as much as a bike, the risk profile is a lot better than than a than a you know, truck or a car, uh, but also more importantly, that that place in the road is one begrudgingly that drivers understand how things move, and uh, you get a lot of people honking at bicyclists. But um, ultimately, I think as we as we think about sustainable futures, we're going to have more bikeable cities, and I think that we're just going to see an expansion of access to micro-mobility vehicles. So I use the kind of micro-mobility scooters all the time to get to work. And you know those are a very recent invention. So we have seen sort of transformations in the urban landscape. So I'm still a firm believer. But as you kind of highlighted, there's still a lot of work to be done. So uh, us and Amazon and a number of other companies are all um, trying things out. And I'm really excited that um, a few of them are going to work out, and we're going to learn some things along the way. So we'll see. Coming up next, the biggest challenges facing robotics today.
0: I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Okay, the Robotics Institute. We're here in your office on the Carnegie Mellon University campus. And as I was waiting for you, I was looking at the timeline outside, um, which could either be inspiring for you or it could create a lot of pressure because there were some groundbreaking events that happened here. In fact, they were in many ways formative for the robotics industry from Three Mile Island uh, to all sorts of other uh, things with the DARPA Grand Challenge, uh, autonomous vehicles, and now, of course, folks are looking at going to space. When somebody comes back here in a decade and looks at the 2020 decade on that timeline, What kinds of things do you expect might be on there that reflect the
1: state of robotics now and where you're headed? Yeah, you know, I think one you already alluded to is you saw space. And so I think you're going to see people from CMU on the moon doing stuff with robots up there. People or their robots? Sorry, robots on the moon. Great point. (laughs) Robots on the moon. No people. Just to be clear, Uh, you you never know with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk true. right? That's true. No, you're going to see some robots on the moon. So I think you'll see robots on the moon. I think you're going to see robots in space doing assembly, um, building systems up there. So I think that's one thing that we're really putting the gas down on here. And and I was just at a a space conference earlier this week um, hosting a panel talking about the future of uh, both commercial space flight, but also, you know, robots in space and assembly and construction. And we had civil engineers and space scientists, plasma scientists. And all kinds of cool stuff going on there. So I think that's gonna be one area. I think the other thing you're gonna see is you're gonna see photos of robots in, again, unstructured environments solving real problems. And so, as opposed to lots of the work that sort of led up to this, I think you're gonna to begin to see more widespread robot use. And so, you know, if you go into any factory that has an assembly line, you're gonna see a ton of robots there, right? And, and that's a thing that I think the public would expect and, and you would definitely see. You're starting to see robots in film. Centers so fulfillment centers are now filled with robots, but the common theme between both of those are those are controlled environments where you don't see any humans in the area where the robots are. Um, I think a couple of years from now you're going to walk into uh, a bunch of different businesses and you're going to see robots next to people, and I think that's the next big challenge is to have robots operating in and around people safely and effectively. And so I think you're going to begin to see that in the streets with AVs, and so you know I think we're going to continue to see advances there, but you're going to see that in the home. I think you're gonna see that in restaurants. I think you're gonna see that in kitchens. And those are the places right now where I think um, the stuff that's being worked on today um, is really gonna come to fruition. So I'm excited for uh, this idea that robots and people are gonna work together um, to do jobs that are hard or or difficult. I think you're gonna see uh, all those things come to pass. As you think about the biggest
0: challenges facing robotics today, are the biggest ones more about physical capabilities, like say, grasping an object of unpredictable size, or are they more about cognitive capabilities, such as exercising sound judgment when presented with an unfamiliar situation, like a person crossing against a red light out on the street?
1: Well, I'm going to give you a a non-answer, which is to say both, Uh, but but let me get into that dichotomy for a second. So I think one of the interesting things you're going to see is that the challenges around grasping, let's use that as an example. So I want to grasp and manipulate an object, and I don't really know much about it. I would really consider most of the problems that we have there um, really around uh, fundamental problems that we still have are are around um, cognitively understanding, where should I grasp this, how should I grasp this, and then how do I adjust my grasp to to do some kind of task to manipulate this in some useful way. now, uh, my cop-out on this is that the physical embodiment you have that allows you to manipulate, so whether that's a robotic hand or suction cups or whatever, really changes the nature of that problem. And so we've really been at the limit of, of what, you know, particularly um, dexterous manipulators are capable of doing. And because of that, it has limited our ability to kind of um, push forward. But if you ask me what are the fundamental challenges there, it's about understanding what you're looking at, and how, to, and how to go about manipulating it, and so almost like almost all problems in robotics now, much of this work is being done from a machine learning standpoint, and so it really is about figuring out how do we train systems to effectively do these tasks, and that's probably the biggest change that we've seen in robotics in the last 15 years is that the impact of machine learning on robotics has been you know uh, sort of um, immeasurable. And really, it has reconfigured lots of the ways that we have gone about solving problems, and and so, um, so much of what we do now um, is thinking about how to apply um, learning to to many of these problems, and so I think that's going to be a big part so
0: of the future. So it's taking the big neural nets that we hear about in the software world and applying them to how the machine interacts with the world. That's exactly right.
1: And and I don't want to undersell how difficult that is, because much of what uh, has sort of happened in computer vision, and particularly in, in kind of what you would consider these, these um, kind of image search problems, where I can recognize a cat, or I can recognize a dog, or I can recognize whatever, um, that's happened fairly recently. And, um, you know, we're just beginning to try to graft a lot of that technology onto what we do in robotics. But um, the way to do that and, and even the, the representations you would choose um, to, to do those things is, is still very uncertain. So that's still changing really rapidly. And, you know, um, really the pace of, of innovation and new papers coming out, new techniques being developed is so fast that it's, it's really hard to keep. Uh, your arms around it. So I think that's going to be an area where, um, Five years from now, it's going to look very different than it does today. In the same way that if you go five years ago, um, many problems, not just in, in images, but also in natural language, were were solved very differently than they are today. So you think about large language models. You think about image classification techniques. Those are things that are now ubiquitous. So your Facebook account recognizes everybody and also all the objects in your, in your photos that you upload from your barbecue. Uh, your phone is capable of answering much more complex natural language queries and search engines and other things that use uh, natural language are, are, again, much more sophisticated chatbots are much more sophisticated. All these things are, are much better. We're just at the beginning of that for robotics because uh, people are still figuring out how to use these tools, but these big neural nets are going to be incredibly impactful for the field. So um, stay tuned. One of the cool things about
0: visiting Pittsburgh for us at GeekWire, because we cover so much in Seattle, cloud enterprise software is, of course, the robotics here, because it does feel like the other half. If you were to create the the robot equivalent of the human, it's it's the body is is here and the mind is there. And that's probably a, a hackish uh, analogy, but I'll, I'll go with it. What would you, as sort of the representation of the body uh, here, tell the people working on the mind back in Seattle? And again, I know this is a horrible caricature, but like what would you want right now? What would be the biggest things you'd be working on in software and AI to enable the kinds of applications that you hope to do in robotics? Yeah, I think some of the biggest
1: things that we're trying to, to import from machine learning or from, from software more generally are a few things. One is uh, ways of getting data to learn over. And so, um, there was a huge push in in things like image classification or natural language where we got these giant corpuses of data, right? So for natural language, it's, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of documents on the internet that provide examples of how people speak and what natural language looks like um, or how people write rather. Um, And for images, it was these huge label data sets that said, you know, this is a cow, this is a duck, this is a bird, this is a house, this is a bike. And those are incredibly powerful for those tasks that they were designed for. Robotics is a very different problem. Uh, a robot has a ton of sensors on it. It's continuously gathering data. Um, and probably in, in terms of volume, it can gather as much data as you know we would have labeled for images in, in a day, maybe in a week. The challenge is obviously with no labels, right? So no human labels. And so it's one of the biggest questions that we're trying to answer in robotics from a learning perspective is, well, how do we go about learning things that are useful from all the data we gather from a robot. So we probably can't go through and and label every single thing in that data. And even if we were able to, it's not clear what you would label, right? So if you walk into a room, there's chairs, there are monitors, there's all kinds of things, but also they're at varying distances, uh, they have different affordances, so that means there's different ways you can interact with them. You can pick some things up, you can't pick other things up. Um, there are places you can pick things up and this is just an incredibly rich environment, even indoors or outdoors. So one of the biggest things that we're hoping to do is figure out, okay, well, how do we go about learning things from that very unstructured data um, that we get from, from robot sensors? Uh, from just a straight requirements perspective, we just need people to keep building uh, lower power higher computational output devices, right? So um, we, like everybody else, are sort of limited by the chips we're able to put in the robot to process information. And so as uh, chips get faster and they take less energy that leaves more for locomotion that leaves more for whatever else you want to do with your robot Um, and so that's probably one of the biggest things and then the final thing i'll I'll leave you with is is there's a whole future in thinking about how the cloud comes to bear on robotics right it's obviously been transformational for lots of things in computing around businesses Um, but if you imagine that ultimately uh, you know robots are designed to move around, um, at some point you reach limits of how much competition power can you place into a thing that is moving around. It needs to be cooled. It needs to be powered. And so the more of that that you can do in a data center uh, that has all those things in abundance and not do it on your humanoid robot that has uh, a battery pack that also has to move all the arms and legs um, is, is, is all for the better. So you know we're thinking about edge computing, but we're also thinking about um, cloud robotics and, and how um, some of that stuff would live elsewhere.
0: Next up, Uber and the future of autonomous vehicles.
1: This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society?
0: Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Coming back, having been here in 2018 and seen the Uber cars driving around on the streets of Pittsburgh... I started to wonder if Uber's exit and some of the challenges they ran into, and then of course selling their self-driving technology business to Aurora, I wonder if that's dampened the industry enthusiasm for autonomous vehicles at all. What would you say from your perspective?
1: I don't think so. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about that, right, is they sold to another self-driving car startup that has uh, a massive footprint here in Pittsburgh. And so, um, you know, the AV industry is really interesting. It is, in some ways, this very unique sort of unicorn when it comes to um, robotic technology, but also startups in general, in the sense that there's an incredible amount of capital investment, uh, you know, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars with a really long-term payoff curve, right? Much, much longer than your typical SaaS business that IPOs and, you know, whatever, n years. And so it'll be an interesting model. I remain optimistic that smart people in the industry have successfully convinced investors of the model that they need to be ready for to invest in that kind of technology. It is not the kind of thing where you're going to get returns in five years. Um, it's probably a much longer timeline. And so, um, You know, you've seen two things. You've seen a lot of consolidation. So I guess what you're kind of hinting at with the Uber acquisition is that it's becoming increasingly difficult to be a small independent AV startup. And so the amount of capital, the amount of people, the amount of uh, sort of um, talent that's required to pull this off really requires a lot of uh, consolidation. And so, you know, if you ask me my predictions for the future. More consolidation um, and more realistic timelines. So, um, I think uh, preparing sort of the market for understanding that look, this is going to take a while, but when it actually shows up, it's going to be very transformative is important. Um, but from Pittsburgh's perspective, we're talking about um, acquisitions in the you know hundreds of millions of dollars. So I don't think that that, uh, if anything, at least I can say from my from my robotic colleagues' perspective. That looks like a whole different world than the one we existed in 10 years ago, where um, the idea that you that a startup would have enough money to buy another startup for a couple hundred million dollars suggests that we are playing in a much bigger league uh, than we were 10 years ago, so... Um, I would say almost the opposite. Once people realize, okay, this is actually a thing where you can have a company that has a thousand engineers working on a problem, it means that the number and breadth of um, robotic startups uh, and robotic companies that could take off has just exploded, right? Because I think before that, people said, look, you know, there's a lot of things we could do with robots, but if I need a thousand engineers to solve one of those problems, and it needs to take ten years or five years to do it. The money, uh, the will wasn't there. And, and I think you can look to things like space um, startups and the investment in space, uh, particularly in commercial space. That's an incredibly recent phenomenon, right? So 15 years ago, you weren't seeing startups take serious venture investment um, in the space sector. People just thought it was sci-fi. And I think you're going to see increasingly more startups there with the exact same um, sort of capital requirements and long term payoff curves that AVs and other robotic startups have. So that's my prediction. But, you know, uh, that's not financial advice. So, you know, (laughs) bet as you will. (laughs) So. I think of what
0: happened in 2015 as the the great Uber poaching incident. I've talked with others here at CMU who have said that it was kind of overblown. I think the Wall Street <laughs> Journal at the time called it a crisis, yeah. which is that's a pretty big word, especially Agreed. in a 2022 22 perspective, like a crisis is a crisis. At any rate, um, I know you're going to tell me these companies are great industry yeah. partners, but how do you navigate the inherent risks oh, yeah. in these industry relationships in your role here leading the Robotics Institute? Oh, look. Up. And, and, en- and NREC is, the commercialization arm, the National yeah. Robotics Engineering Center, which is where th- those researchers largely came from that went yes. to Uber.
1: Yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so you're 100% correct on the history. Uh, look, so I, I, I'm, I'm not going to give you a non-answer here. I'll give you a real answer here. No, I think it's an incredible risk. And I think there's two big structural risks that I saw coming in and that I'm really focused on in this role. Robotics as kind of we know it and and sort of the now we think about it in sort of the um, modern era um, was really an academic pursuit, almost exclusively outside of industrial robots until very recently. Right. Um, So we're talking, you know, startups and big companies really investing in the kind of robots that we would build here at CMU. Um, That's a very recent phenomenon. And. You only have to look to sort of adjacent fields to understand the risk and the challenges that we face. And I'll point to two, machine learning and computer vision. And those are tightly related because really computer vision now is done with machine learning. But if you look at those two fields, there was this incredible um, vacuum of talent in industry, from people that really understood how those technologies worked, because they were developed, you know, primarily in academia, and, and then we saw these massive advances, right? So you think about deep nets; um, that was an incredible step forward when it came to um, the utility of that technology. And what it highlighted to me was how unprepared <laughs> we, as academics, um, and I say that collectively, not just me, but like us as a as a as a species, um, for what it meant. You have an incredible commercial value to the thing that you had produced. You know, if you meet any academic, the the sort of modal academic, we are really good at thinking about big ideas. In many cases, we're really good at developing new technology, and, and even writing about it and often speaking about it very, very in very, very sophisticated and, and nuanced ways. I think a thing we are utterly untrained for is the. Power, speed, and sort of force of uh, you know massive commercial entities, you know they have more lawyers uh, than people you have ever met in your entire life, right? Uh, working for them, and so you know from that perspective, I think there's there's a couple really big risks. One is that we've seen these uh, increasingly. Um, uh, uh, ludicrous uh, compensation packages for academics that leave and go and work at some of these massive companies, really because these companies, you know, are, are making profits that are again sort of uh, unthinkable to the to the uh, reptilian part of our brains. Um, and I think that that's a big challenge because what we've seen is a number of really talented uh, academics have left and moved to industry completely, and and now, you know, they run research groups within these big companies and and they do very similar things to what we did here in the university, which I think is great on its face, but I think a, there's a couple really big challenges with that that we have to be really conscious of. One is that you know, our central goal here at the university is to create knowledge and to train students, right? And that is, um, it's beautiful in its simplicity. That's a very simple goal, and so it's very easy to always check yourself against whether that's what you're doing, right? Uh, Companies, that is not their goal, right? Their goal is to maximize shareholder profits, and in some cases, those two goals are aligned, and in some cases, you get to do work that is really aligned with creating knowledge and training new people, but often you do not. And so I think um, we have to be very careful because if, if we are too quick to um, capitalize on the value being created by the technology we're developing, we'll do two things. One, we'll lose the ability to sustain that in the sense that you need to reinvest in the next generation of people to learn about that technology, but more importantly to create new technology. And I think if you see a disinvestment in people um, and you get incredibly focused on um, exploiting what you have today, um, that has long-term consequences. So that's one of the big risks. And I think the second big risk is that we need to be working on things that are not uh, driven by perhaps the business models of the companies that exist today, uh, particularly if we're developing a new technology like robotics, um, the business models for robotics has not, have not been worked out yet, and they are not going to look the same as sort of the um – information capitalism of you know the fang companies of the world and maybe they maybe it will but I but I sort of have a lot of doubts about that and so I think until we can be really um, clear on on what the right way of scaling robotic companies and robotic technology is and they're going to be really cautious to not lose everybody to industry we'll still be doing fundamental research here at universities and then the second part of that is that like without an investment in the long-term future of robotics we may um, we may get a couple short-term wins, but I don't think we're going to see the benefit to humanity we will if we really stay invested in, in, in saying this is a thing um, that's 100 years um, not um, you know, whatever next quarter. Um, so those are my two cents on that, but I guess the thing I'll say in terms of how do we address that I'm trying to, you know, work with faculty and with students to make sure that whatever they're doing, they feel like they're making an impact on the world. And maybe part of that is working with companies. Maybe part of that is going on leave to companies. And so I'm trying to be really flexible. And I think what you don't want is people to leave, disappear on the promise of, uh, wherever they're going, going to be You know, it's going to be transformative, and look, everybody. I'm, you know, all all those people are fine who who left. I'm sure, I'm sure they're all doing fine. But there's something really special that you can do at a university that you really can't do elsewhere. And so, uh, I think it's just important to keep that in mind. Here in the gateway to
0: the Midwest, I feel compelled to make a eating the seed corn analogy. Right. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. And and I think. We also need to do research on things that may benefit humanity broadly, but don't necessarily advance the short-term interests of of corporations, right?
0: We've seen the University of Washington
1: uh, Allen School of
0: Computer Science mm. do some interesting things where professors will leave but still
1: retain a presence yep. at the Allen School. So flexible appointments, I think, are important. I, I think the two things you have to keep in mind with that are, you know, what are the power dynamics? Mm-hmm. So Who, who's it, running that person's schedule? Yeah. And then also, more importantly, the power dynamics between that person. So. Again, the person who goes to work at a company gets lots of money and lots of fame and recognition, they'll be fine. Uh, It is their grad students and undergrads that really uh, bear the brunt of that person being gone. And so it's just, I think it's really critical to always remember that there are less powerful people, the seed corn in this case, maybe not the, (laughs) maybe not what they'd like to be called, but the seed corn that, that need to be nurtured. And so, um, let me not come off as negative on trying to translate your research into Oh, the you, done I'm it. doing it. Yes. Uh, I'm deeply encouraging it of, of it here at CMU and of the faculty that are doing it here. I think it's just critical to, um, make sure you do that in a way that is with eyes open and, and, and not naively because I think it's that, it's that naivete that can get you caught up because you can believe that, um, you're going somewhere to do um, what they promised you. But, uh, A company's desire to continue funding um, blue sky long-term open-ended research is very dependent on their stock price. And it is rare that your long-term blue sky open-ended research directly impacts the stock price day to day. So that disconnect is critical to keep in mind. So you spent part of your childhood in
0: Seattle, Mm -hmm. Garfield High? Yes, that's right. Go Bulldogs. you, (laughs) you, You, as we said earlier, spent a lot of time in Michigan. And now you, though, are coming back here. To Pittsburgh, the place where you graduated as an undergrad in computer science in 2005. And you're leading this prestigious institute. You're in the corner office here. What's it like for you? Has it sunk in yet? What, what you're
1: doing? It's, it's surreal in many ways. So my house is in walking distance of, of campus, and so I walk. Um, past the dorm where I lived as a freshman every day on my way to work, and so that in and of itself is a very weird feeling, right? It is um, in some ways circular. I feel like I've come back home, and I'm back to a place that kind of inspired me uh, in the first place to go into robotics, so that's incredibly powerful. Um, and many of the people that I work with when I was here and I was getting started are still here, and so it's an, honestly an honor to work alongside them and really the reason you know I wanted to take this job, taking an academic administrative job, takes a lot of time, distracts from your research, and in some ways can be thankless, but I'll tell you the reason that I am so excited to be here. Um, this place gave me so much, it gave me an opportunity to get into robotics, and it really ignited a passion in me for this field. And why I was excited to come back and take this job is that I think one of the things you can do from a role like this is to help other people achieve that same set of goals that I had. And if I look kind of as, you know, my c- career kind of progresses and I get a little you know longer in the tooth, one of the real goals I have is to invest in the next generation of roboticists. And there's no better place to do that than here. And whether it's students or junior faculty or uh, the community of Pittsburgh, I want to help All of those constituents feel that same passion for robotics that I do. Um, And if it's not robotics, just to see the passion that people here have for um, something, and hopefully that's contagious and it makes people want to go out and um, do things to help change the world. And so I feel very lucky to have this job. It has not sunk in. Every day feels uh, very surreal, but it's it's a very lucky job to have. And I'm really excited to see where things go. Matt, thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me.
0: Matthew Johnson-Robertson is the director of the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University's School of Computer Science. See more coverage of our return trip to Pittsburgh at geekwire.com. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, signing off for now from Robotics Row. More soon. Thanks for listening.